Hi guys, welcome back to Tell Me About It, finally after five long weeks. If you're new around here, each week I sit down with an incredible woman and leave our highlight reels at the door. Together we take a magnifying glass to our insecurities, anxieties, shame spirals, mental health crises, mistakes, heartbreaking rejections, bad days, weeks, months, and the obstacles that make us feel like shit. I was admittedly so hesitant to take this five-week break. Like, I really didn't want to. My producer, Catherine, can attest to that. I was really, I just felt like five weeks was so long. And I was like, what if they forget about me? And I just, I feel like I rely on our interaction in this show. So, like, it was weird for me. But we've been recording like crazy. And in all honesty, these five weeks have flown by. With all the birthdays and holidays and everything else going on, I'm like shocked that we're finally back, but I am very, very happy to be here. I miss you guys a lot, and I'm just so damn excited to release this episode. Let's finally get back to business. Happy, happy new year. I hope the holidays didn't traumatize you guys too much. I turned a year older since we last spoke, and I have a million other life updates, but I'll save that for a solo episode when we can really get into it. Because now, without further ado, today is the day we finally get to release the Amanda Knox episode. So we booked her months ago, but I recorded with her around Thanksgiving time, November 29th. And I have been waiting months, it feels like, for this day, the day that we finally get to release the Amanda Knox episode. When you hear that name, it probably rings a bell, and rightfully so. She was in the news constantly throughout our childhood and adolescence. Maybe you think you know the story. Maybe you don't. Maybe you have assumptions about Amanda and the case in general. But whether you follow the case or not, you are in for a treat. This episode will surprise you in so many ways, and I'm so excited for you guys to hear it. Amanda Knox is an exoneree, podcaster, and author of the New York Times bestselling memoir, Waiting to be Heard. I went back and forth on whether or not to go through this entire case with you guys, but I think it's important to go through the broad strokes and give you just the cliff notes of this case, just to jog your memory, because there were so many parts of it that I didn't remember, and trust me, the details are important. Amanda Knox was studying abroad in Italy at 20 years old when she found her roommate, Meredith Kircher, had been murdered in the apartment they shared with two other women. Her actions during the investigation were highly scrutinized in splashy tabloid articles detailing unfounded stories of sex cults and positioning Amanda as a killer, a seductress, and a master manipulator. Every move she made was twisted. A stretch she did after hours of interrogation was spun into headlines like Amanda Knox does cartwheels during discussions of murder, and a kiss, which she'll talk about later in this episode, that changed the trajectory of her life. It was a true trial by media. Because the Italian courts don't sequester jurors, her jury was exposed to all the headlines, true, controversial, or completely made up, that were circulating all the time. Early in the investigation, she made a coerced confession that implicated herself, her boyfriend, and her boss at the time. Her boss was quickly exonerated, but Amanda wasn't so lucky. Amanda and her then-boyfriend, Raffaele Solacido, spent four years in an Italian prison after being wrongfully convicted in 2007. Amanda was fully exonerated in 2015 when she was 28. 
In the end, a drifter and known thief, Rudy Gaudet, was convicted of Meredith Kircher's murder after his bloody fingerprints and DNA were found at the scene of the crime. He was sentenced to 16 years and has since been released from prison. So before, when I mentioned that we recorded on November 29th, that's only really important because of what I'm about to tell you. So I was on my way to the podcasting studio and I was like at a red light and I had this weird feeling where I was like, should I cancel? Like it was this intrusive thought and I was like, wow, that's weird. In all 40 whatever episodes, I've not had that feeling before. Like I've never been tempted to cancel. And I was like, okay, that's weird. I had this shiver down my spine and I was like, okay, something feels weird, but like Jade, maybe like your depression is acting up or maybe like whatever, something's going on, but just ignore it and move on. So I did. So I get to the studio and something in me is like, I mean, I usually Google my guests before I interview them, but I'm, I'm researching them days and weeks before the actual interview. So I Googled her before, but something in me was like, Google her. That's why we'd always need to listen to our guts. So I Googled her and I saw that Rudy Gaudet, the man that was convicted of Meredith Kircher's murder, had since been released from prison. So this was five weeks ago now. And he had just been released from prison and was having his first interviews where he said things like, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but like Amanda Knox knows exactly what she did, basically alleging that she is guilty of the murder and that he is innocent. And in that moment, after having spent weeks listening to Amanda recount this story over and over again on various podcasts and doing my research that I've done on her, reading her interviews, etc., I just couldn't stop thinking that she must be so goddamn tired of this story, of having to go over this narrative and declare her innocence over and over and over again. And when I saw that news about Rudy Gaudet and that he was bringing up her name again in the tabloids, On the day that we were recording, I just felt this immense compassion for her. I just felt like, damn, she must be exhausted, pushing this boulder up a hill, trying to prove her innocence, trying to maintain some sense of normalcy. And here, out of just the clear blue sky, this guy is released again and bringing her name back into this traumatic case. I just felt so bad and I can't help but feel that I must have sensed whatever that hesitation or just that exhaustion was from her about recording that day. And I told her that I felt that way when we started the interview and her response is super interesting. I'm really excited for you to hear it. So I won't make you wait any longer. Trust me, I've been waiting for this for so long. Here is Amanda Knox. Thank you so much for coming on, Amanda. Hi. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to meet you. I've heard you on nearly every other interview you've ever done, and I just am so excited to talk to you. There is so much to unpack. First thing I want to say, congratulations on the new baby. Thank you. Yeah, she's wonderful. I love being a mom even more than I thought I would, which I thought. How old is she now? She is going to be five months in on December 11th, so I guess four and a half months. Okay. So when's her birthday? It's in July. It's actually very, very near my birthday, which is really fun. Is she a cancer? My birthday is July 9th. Yeah. Oh, you both are cancers. I love cancers. I'm a cancer rising. I don't know really what that means, but... It means nothing. (laughs) It means nothing. It means nothing. (laughs) But what's motherhood been like? I love the name Eureka. 
Thank you. Yeah. My husband and I wanted to have a name that sounded like a classic name, but Mm -hmm. which you'd never heard before. And Eureka kind of fit all of those buttons perfectly. And I love just the idea of it, this moment of inspiration. And for us, like this sudden and life-changing joy in our lives. Motherhood is fascinating because, first of all, as I said on my podcast, Labyrinths, I did a whole series about, you know, first of all, even just trying to become pregnant and like miscarriages and all the things that get in the way and how that um, there are these like life altering circumstances that you wouldn't expect. You just kind of take for granted that one day you'll be mm-hmm. a parent if you want that in your mm-hmm. life. And I was shocked at the number of um First of all, difficulties that I encountered, which I just assumed wouldn't happen. And then when I talked about that with other people and invited them onto my podcast to talk about their experiences, just the number of things that can go wrong yes. <laughs> is no, amazing. It's, it's astounding. <laughs> truly, truly. And it can make you really fearful. Oh, yeah. It's one of those existential crises, inflection points mm-hmm. that – In the same way that, like, anyone can get sick with something like cancer, say, Mm -hmm. and yet you don't think about that until it happens to you. Right. And then it, like, changes your life in a huge way. And and you have to reframe your own – your own relationship with your own life in a mm. in a new way. So, if anything like that has also been the experience for me with ha- being a mom, is um, I suddenly feel a intense sense of um, responsibility to um, adapt the environment as opposed to adapt myself to the environment. So, like I, I want my daughter to. Be in a she. I think she deserves to live in a better world than I grew up in, and I'm doing. I feel like I'm trying really hard to put her or to like place her in a space where she's going to experience kindness and where she's going to experience people who are going to be you know, have humility, like be the kinds of people who will admit when they're wrong and say they're sorry to her if something happens, which has not been the case for me. Right. So like these are all things that I'm thinking about. Like it's different when something bad happens to you, or at least that's been it for me. Like when I think about me and bad things that have happened to me, I think, okay, how do I adapt to this radically different world that I've suddenly been plunged into that I didn't expect, right? Like, how do I adapt? How do I make the best of a bad situation? How do I maintain my sanity and my mental health? Um, But when it comes to my daughter, I can't be there in her own mind doing that for her. So I want to sort of adapt the environment to be a better place for her. And that's been a more like, that's been a kind of deep, visceral, emotional challenge for me because it kind of goes against my own sort of mindfulness impulses, which is I I know ultimately all I can do is equip my daughter with a a good sense of mindfulness. But when Mm. she's so little right now and like she has no control over her life, I'm greatly, greatly aware of these external forces and yes. how they're going to be influencing her and determining in in some way who she becomes as a human being. And so I'm being very mindful of that at this 
time of my life. Yeah, and I think that's so much more of an empowering stance to take than rather than the alternative, which you could, you know, so easily fall into, which is like the world is scary and bad and, you know, all these things. It's very it's so much more empowering to say, well, actually, how can I build her world around the, this truth that I've been exposed to? Like, how can I better equip her for to handle these things that happen in life? Yeah, um, absolutely. <laughs> but my question is, will you let her study abroad? Yes. Yeah, you will. actually. Um, and I think that I'm going to also, once again, better equip her for that because yes. one of the things that my husband and I really want to do is to live abroad with mm. her when she is younger. Okay. So she is going to have the experience of an international um, cultural experience and exchange before she's just a young adult who is newly exposed to, to like, being on her own. Like, I I didn't have that experience as much. So I sort of was a young adult trying to be an individual adult person for the first time. And then also I was particularly vulnerable being in a new place. Beyond. Yeah. Right. Yes. So I think that I'm going to at least head off some of the issues that I had when I was studying abroad thinking mm-hmm. like I didn't need help when I really needed help like I and she's going to understand um, I think cultural norms and how they differ and how different cultures will view behaviors in different ways yes and so I think I'm hoping to give her better perspective than I had well that's a perfect launching point for us to dive into your story my first question is are you so sick of talking about this of like telling the story again. Um, it's funny. I was talking to my husband this morning about how I wasn't sure if I really felt up to an interview and a podcast today. Yes, Amanda, <laughs> I totally understand what you're saying. I thought I had that same like I feel like I can feel other people sometimes and mm. I really was like feeling that this morning I was listening to your story cuz I've listened to you on several podcasts and I was like this is so intense for someone to endure over and over and over again. Yeah, I appreciate that empathy. And maybe you were just your ears were tingling yeah. with empathy or something because <laughs> something. I was <laughs> because I like this morning. I don't know. It's just kind of been a difficult morning because um, I don't know if you've been following the recent news with the case, but um Rudy Gaudet, the man who murdered my roommate and then falsely accused me, has very recently been basically released from custody in the sense that, like, he already was off on day release and then work release. And now he's definitively no longer, like, subject to the Italian justice system. He's a free man. Like, his DNA (laughs) was at the crime scene. He was convicted. He copped to actually being at the crime scene that night, but did not cop to the murder itself. Yeah. Yeah. His story is that he and Meredith were hanging out, having consensual sexual Mm. things going on. And then he went to the bathroom. And while he was in the bathroom, someone came in and murdered Meredith. And then he came out of the bathroom to find her bleeding to death and tried to save her life, but then fled the country in fear of being wrongly convicted. And of course, like this is obscene because one Meredith had no relationship with him whatsoever like she would not have been you know making out or like doing stuff with him in the first place Um, she was interested in a totally other guy at the time and 
Two, how convenient that like the only you know DNA at the crime scene is yours, no one else's. It's mm-hmm. yours and the victims, and yet someone else killed her. Right. Um. And you just conveniently fled the country. And anyway, so like he's he's someone who has been navigating that difficult path of being obviously guilty, but like sort of taking advantage of the fact that the prosecution focused its attention on me initially and refused to admit fault when it turned out that all of this evidence pointed to someone completely different. And so he has been able to sort of skate underneath the radar, really. Like, I I talk to him as if he's like the forgotten killer. A lot of people don't know who he is. And yet everyone knows your name. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And that's like been this ongoing traumatic thing for me. And it's only just risen to the surface again today. And I say this is why it's been particularly difficult today, because, of course, like all these tabloid journalists who made a career out of vilifying me are now like giving ex- exclusive interviews to Rudy Gaudet, where he gets to once again accuse me of murder that he did. Um, and it's I don't know. It's just a lot to process because I, I one of my family members um, said, like, yeah, you know, Amanda, like you've been through a really crazy experience, but it's been 10 years. So maybe like maybe it's over. And it's like, I don't know if it's over because it doesn't feel over to me. And that's it's like an ongoing trauma that just keeps morphing. And I keep having to once again adapt to a, a sort of similar version, but a different trauma that keeps manifesting in new ways. Yes. And how does that manifest itself now versus before? Like now that you have a daughter and everything, are you is your first thought? Are the kids at school going to read or like what's your first thought when you go through that? Like what does the wound feel like today? I mean, today, and I was actually texting with Raffaele this morning mm. um, because, you know, it it feels like what is it going to take mm-hmm. for the world to accept that I had nothing to do with my friend's murder, that Raffaele had nothing to do with the murder. Like there's no DNA evidence. There's no motive. There's there never was. We were found definitively innocent by the Italian court. And yet and yet here we are 14 years later and they are still publishing articles portraying the same like did she or didn't she do it? Well, the murderer says she did it. So maybe she did. And it's like, can we please like the question that that I'm keep sort of thinking and is has always plagued me is Am I allowed to move on with my life and not be defined by this thing that I didn't do? Is there anything ever that is going to define me more than this thing that I didn't do? And, like, Mm. I've been working hard the past 10 years to, like, have a career and have a really great podcast labyrinth where I interview lots of interesting people about times that I felt lost or stuck. And, And here I am still lost and stuck in a big way. (laughs) Yes. No, like when you wake up and see those Google alerts, and we'll get into the story in a minute. I I hate to even ask you to bring it up to talk about it again. But when you see it, do you feel like that 20-something-year-old again? Are you like, oh, boy, like what do those Google alerts feel like? I don't feel good. (laughs) Right. Of course not. It's a lot to process. I feel Mm -hmm. like I'm just continually processing 
new instances of the same trauma. Yeah. And a part of me, like, just, again, it's like, is it a good day or a bad day? And today was kind of a bad day. Today I kind of felt, like, fed up with it. Yes. I was like, can't I just, like... I just want to not have to deal with it anymore. Absolutely. And, <laughs> but, like, I know that that's not a choice, so I'm just sort of indulging in this fatalistic sort of defeatism for a moment, which I think is okay, right? I think you're allowed to have a bad day. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> I feel erased as right. a human being. Right. And, like, that's really hard. Like, when you sort of try to, like, make a little tick in the world, like, you try to make your mark and then somebody just erases it yet again and calls you a murderer. And it's like I, I'm i sort of batting my head against this this ongoing attempt to define who I am by something that I didn't do. And I don't know. It's today is a difficult day. Yeah. Yesterday wasn't as difficult a day. Like yesterday I was I was handling it and wasn't feeling, you know, stuck in a in a mental rut due to it and I think that that's true of any experience, like any traumatic experience um and any kind of grief, honestly. Like some days you feel like you've really got a hold on it and then suddenly it it shifts and you don't have a hold on it at all. Right. <laughs> so and- you feel crazy. <laughs> No, like, do you, like, how do you handle those kinds of things? Like, do you call a therapist? Do you just kind of sit in the shit, so to speak? Do you, Hmm. like, how do you cope? I definitely have been taking steps to to get away from my phone because Mm -hmm. my phone has not always been my friend in the sense that, like, it's it's not – my husband and I have these different modes of Mm. being that we actually learned from – uh, professional dominatrix, as it so wow. happens. Um, yeah. So like uh, when we interviewed this professional dominatrix for our podcast, Labyrinths, um, we asked – we actually met with this professional dominatrix at her own like dominatrix convention. And what we discovered was that in the kink community, there is these different stages of protocol, right? Like sometimes you're in high protocol and that means that you're like – fully in submission to your dominatrix and you're gagged and, you know, like you're, you know, getting beaten or whatever. And that's like high protocol. And then you, there might be different layers of protocol where you if you're in a relationship with that person 24 seven, you are not going to be in, you know, a ball gag all day mm-hmm. long every day when you're at the grocery store. You're right. going to be in different levels of protocol. Sometimes it's going to be so casual that somebody on the outside looking at you would not realize that you're in a uh, dominant submissive relationship. And the way that my husband and I translated this was, okay, well, in our vanilla relationship, which is what the kink community calls anybody who's, you know, not in the kink community, in our vanilla relationship, are there different moments when we need different things from each other given the circumstances? So, like, as his partner, as my husband's partner, sometimes my my role is to challenge him, mm, right? Mm-hmm. I'm go- I am If I know that he has some aspect of himself that he's wanting to sort of push himself to do better or be a little bit different, I can be a person. My role for him is to push him in that direction. But there are some times where he doesn't want to be pushed. Or right. in this case, there are some times where I just want to be comforted. I don't want to be, like, told what the solutions are. I don't want, you know, I don't want to be in problem-solving mode. I just kind of want to feel bad 
and sad and for someone to sort of cuddle me. And that's comfort mode, right? It's a totally different protocol than challenge mode, right? Um, and I think that today I'm in comfort mode as yeah. opposed to challenge mode. And, I, and I'm often putting myself in challenge mode. So. Yes. No, I will sit in that comfort mode with you. So Thank you. <laughs> I, you know, I, as I say that, let's talk about the story. Mm-hmm. Let's just go through bullet points like your experience, why you chose Italy, and then your experience on November 1st and 2nd. Sure. So I chose to study abroad in Italy because at when I was 20 years old, I was studying to become a, a translator. Mm-hmm. I was taking multiple different language classes. Um, I have an aptitude for mm. foreign language. I was studying German and Italian, and I had actually applied for two different programs, one in Germany and one in Italy. Mm -hmm. And I was accepted into both, but I figured since my family is German, I have more familiarity with that language. Italy was more more of a foreign language for me that I wanted to study abroad there because that would give me better access to the language. It would better imprint itself into my mind. So I chose Perugia, Italy, which is a small town um, it's. I mean, it's the capital of Umbria, which is like the centermost region um, in Italy. Um, it's one of the only regions that doesn't have that isn't along the coast, okay. and it's this beautiful area of the country that's very rolling hills. And Assisi is in Umbria, um, and so Perugia was this tiny town, um, very ancient, that was that on was on top of a hill that overlooked these beautiful valleys. And had this like one main street and yet was big enough to hold two universities. Wow. So there was a Università per Stranieri, which is the smaller university, which was language focused for people who are not Italian. And then there was the Italian university, the Università di Perugia, which is where any university students could go and take, you know, film classes or okay. whatever. Like it, it's a it's a university that is in Italian language. And I couldn't take that. I couldn't go to that university because I wasn't fluent in Italian. Okay. And you're in your junior year of college, right? Yeah. Just starting my junior year of college. So I'm 20 years old. um, And I arrive in Perugia and I immediately find roommates. Mm. As I was visiting the Università per Stranieri, just outside of the university was a young woman, a young Italian woman, I guess, you know, I think she was 26 or 27 at the time, who was putting up a flyer for a room for let. And uh, it was, you know, a hop skip from the university. So I thought, oh, my gosh, perfect. We hit it off. We um, hung out and had coffee together and and ate figs and just Mm -hmm. made made the deal right there. Perfect. Wow. And then shortly after. Yeah. Kismet. And then shortly after that, Meredith had a similar encounter with Laura and Philomena, the two Italian roommates who were there and also made an agreement to stay. And so here we were, all four roommates together in this little apartment in Italy. Wow. And I think I was there. um, I had moved in and was there for approximately five or six weeks before Rudy Gaudet broke into our home and raped and murdered Meredith. Mm. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. First of all, you and Meredith were close-ish, right? 
We were new roommates, and we were the two, like, Laura and Philomena had known each other for a very long time. Okay. Like, they were friends for a long time, had been roommates for a long time. They were older than us. And so they they had, like, their sort of thing together, and then me and Meredith were the, the younger mm-hmm. foreign students who, like, were living together. And so we clicked. Like, we were— in terms of like new friendships, we were we were close, right? Um, but at the same time, we it's we didn't know each other for a long period of time. And Meredith had other friends um, from who had also come from Britain to study in Perugia, and so she also had like a separate friend group aside from the house that we all lived together and hung out with. And so I didn't hang out with Meredith all the time, but I certainly hung out with her. A lot of the time, like we would go grocery shopping together or we would go visit, you know, things that were happening. We went to a, a concert at the Università per Stranieri together, like those kinds of things. Like when you're first getting to know someone who you're studying abroad with. But you exactly. were also, you had just met Raffaele, right? Mm-hmm. So five days before the murder, five I met Raffaele. Oh, yeah. my God. Mm-hmm. Wow. So we had known each other for five days. And a lot of people like, wow, you know, his, your boyfriend and Lala. And it's like, well, boyfriend's a, a big word yeah. for yes. a five day long, you know, relationship. But sure. But yeah. <laughs> you weren't even sure yourself if you wanted to call him your boyfriend. And then here you are being spread on these tabloids with like this romantic lover, this Italian lover that you have. Yes, and that I'm his, like, femme fatale dominatrix who can get him to do anything like rape right. and murder someone for me. Right, which is just the tip yeah. of the iceberg of the entire media frenzy you endure. Yeah. So, you okay, so November 1st to 2nd, can you just run me through that? So November 1st, the day after Halloween, you know, everyone had been partying on Halloween. It, it, it's not a huge holiday in Italy, but for students it is. It's yeah. a, an opportunity to get dressed up and have, like, you know, their Halloween-themed, yeah. you know, pub crawls and, and stuff like that. So Meredith had dressed up and ha- and gone out with her British friends. I had sort of worked a shift um, on on Halloween at like the pub that I the local pub that I was working at, and then left early and sort of drew a little cat mask on me and hung out with Raffaele that mm-hmm. evening. Then November first rolls around and I'm at home. I and. What I like the the memory that I have is Meredith woke up late like she normally does. She tends to 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 sleep in, and she came out and she still had like the fake blood on her lip. Um, she she had dressed up as a vampire, so she had like fake blood on her lip, and you know she told me about her Halloween how she had gone to Merlin's and had fun with her friends and she put in a load of laundry and then, you know, got cleaned up, got changed and left to go hang out with her girlfriends. And, you know, I I have this distinct memory of her, like, putting her purse over her shoulder and just being like, "Okay, see you later. And then walking out the door. And that was the last I ever saw of her. Um, And then, of course, you know, the rest of my day was going and hanging out with my new, you right. know, my new boyfriend. Right. And he was really excited because it was a long weekend. 
and he wanted to take me to a, a, a small town nearby called Gubbio, which was um, it's famous for its like truffles and things like that. And so he wanted he was wanting to give me like, like this beautiful Italian experience. He was definitely like, oh, you know, you're my girlfriend now. And so I must get you an Italian perfume, just like a good Italian girl. And we must go to Gubbio where you will have Italian truffles. Yes. And so In very so many like, ways, it's like a dream experience, <laughs> like, you know, yeah. studying abroad experience. Yeah, he was so sweet, especially because, like, I found a lot of the guys in Perugia, a lot of the young guys, to be really pushy. I got, like, uncomfortable vibes from a lot of young men in that area because there was this sort of sense of, like, oh, American girls, they, you know, they'll hook up with anyone. And I I got, like, a weird vibe from that. I definitely – and I found Raffaele to be this, like, very sweet, like, romantic, like, sweet guy um, who was not pushy at all. So I really liked that he had this – sort of care for me and he was showing me around and making me feel like I was on my Italian journey yes. and so he was we had this plan this like a plan to go and spend the weekend in Gubbio and so November 1st I go I spend the night at Raffaele's and in the morning I head back to my place to take a shower change my clothes get ready to gather my things to go to Gubbio but of course, I come home and I find my house in disarray. Now, when I first come home, I don't really know what to think from what I see. What I see is my door, it, the front door to the, our apartment was wide open, which obviously is a bad sign. You don't just leave your front door open. I knew that the latch for our door was broken. Okay. And so if you didn't like fully lock the door, like with your key, it yes. would open. Okay. And so I figured, oh, maybe someone just forgot to lock the door in order to keep the door closed. Well, I go inside. Everything looks normal from what I can see in the main sort of kitcheny hangout area. I go to my bedroom. I undress. I go to the bathroom. And then I first notice something off. And that is a few speckles of blood in the in the sink of our bathroom. I think, oh, hmm, that's odd. But yeah. don't think the worst possible thing could have happened. I take a shower. I come out of the shower and I notice more blood on the bath mat. And I think, huh, that's odd. Yeah. But again, I don't think someone's just been murdered. I think, oh, maybe someone hurt themselves or maybe someone's having a heavy period. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, as women, we're used to seeing blood on beds and like... Yeah, in our underwear and like, yeah. So I thought, okay, fine. I went back to my bedroom. I got dressed. And then I went to my the other bathroom in the house that um, Laura and Philomena used mm -hmm. and to borrow their hair dryer. And it was there that I noticed that there was feces left in the toilet. Okay. And for... You know, I know that it seems odd to say, like, oh, feces is the thing that did it for me. But, like, Laura and Philomena were really meticulously clean. Mm. And the idea that they would leave their bathroom dirty like that struck me as off. And I remember having, like, a feeling a chill and thinking, like, is somebody in the house with me? Like, yeah. who's who's in, like, who would do that? So I dried my hair really quickly and then I left and I asked I started calling my roommates getting no answer and I asked Raffaele what do you think about this like I found the door open I found this will you go back to the house with me and check it out I finally got through to Philomena 
And I told her what I had seen. And she said, absolutely go back to the house. Make sure nothing has been stolen. Um, You know, if you have to call the cops. So me and Rafaela go back to the house and we look more carefully. We open up Philomena's bedroom door and we find that her entire room is a mess. The Mm. window is broken. Her whole room has been thrown in disarray. And we call the cops. Right. Raffaele, to be clear, calls the cops because I don't even know how to call the cops. Yes, (laughs) right. And he explains there's been a break in. The police say, "Okay, remain where you are. Um, We'll be there shortly. We step outside to wait for the cops to arrive. And within seconds, two cops in plains clothes, so mm, not in uniform, right. show up and we say, oh, wow, that was fast. You were, were you just around the corner? And they were like, no, what are you talking about? We're here for we're here for these cell phones. And we're like, cell phones? What are you talking about? And he says, well, we found these cell phones. These cell phones were found in a garden. And we were like, cell phones? And he's like, have you seen Philomena? Uh, or we're looking for Philomena Romanelli. And Philomena, apparently these phones are registered to Philomena. And we go, well, Philomena is fine. I just talked to her on the phone. She's on her way. Maybe she can explain. I Like, I was just talking to her on the phone. So, And you're doing this all through, like, broken English and it, well, right Raffaele. Oh, Raffaele okay, is yes. doing it for okay. me. So Raffaele has broken English. He is being the one who's translating and explaining to the cops what's going on. Okay. And so we tell the cops, well, okay, fine, those phones. But, like, we're, we're waiting for the cops because there's been a break-in. Right. And so we invite the co- these two plainclothes cops to come inside and to check out this break-in that happened. Mm-hmm. And we explain, like, hey, we we noticed that Lauda's room is fine. Philomena's room is totally in disarray. And mm. we can't even get into Meredith's room because it's locked. Mm. And so we're like, but can you kick down her door? Like, can you open it? And these plainclothes cops say, no, we, we're not allowed to, like, we're not here for a break-in. We're here for these phones. We're right. not allowed to, like, just start you know, breaking property. Right. That's not that's not what we're allowed to do. Well, Philomena arrives and she's like hysterical. She's telling the cops like something's wrong. Those phones belong to Meredith. And I was like, like they belong to Meredith. Oh, well, apparently Philomena had given Meredith oh, okay. some SMS cards and she was using them in her phones. So oh. these are Meredith's phones. Meredith is missing. Meredith is not answering her phones. Here they are. Where is Meredith? And her her bedroom door is locked. And we're thinking, oh, my gosh, maybe something bad happened to her. Is she, like, unconscious in there? Is she sick? Is, like, what's going on? So Philomena demands that these police officers break down her door. Mm. And so she, her boyfriend, um, Philomena's two friends had arrived with her. They had all been hanging out the night before. And these cops all break down Meredith's door while me and Raffaele are speaking to a few other cops who had arrived right. who are in the kitchen. Okay. And as soon as the door is broken down, Philomena starts screaming. She is screaming. She's hysterical. She's sobbing. She's uh, so, I, And what I hear uh, out of all of this, you know, sudden yeah. you know, craziness is a foot, a foot, un piede, un piede. And I'm thinking, is there a foot in there? Like a severed yeah. foot? What What is going on? And if, so then immediately the cops, like, shove us all out of the house, um, tell us, like, we have to leave the house. And we're standing outside, and I'm—Philomena is losing her mind, and I'm bewildered trying to figure out what the heck is going on. And that's, you know, when it all started. Wow. So 
when did the paparazzi and tabloids start to come around? Like, did they come that day? Oh, yeah. Within an hour, maybe, there were paparazzi stationed outside of the house. And I can't imagine how they would know unless Mm -hmm. the cops had tipped them off because, like, how honestly, how would they know? But paparazzo Um, is an Italian word, right? I heard you say that on another podcast. And I was like, that's brilliant. I didn't, didn't even think of that. Yeah, the Italians invented the paparazzi. And then, of course, that ended up migrating to all over the over the globe. Right. That industry of like um, invasive photography um, that we've come to know as the paparazzo um, that is typical of celebrities. Mm -hmm. Like that's that's what it initially was a part of. But then turned into any kind of like scandalous content that you get that surreptitious photo the thing that honestly murdered princess diana right. like that that is that industry so these photographers and and news professionals were camped up outside of our house mm-hmm. while our house is being processed as a crime scene right we're being questioned by the cops and part of that time i was just standing there with Raffaele, sort of freaked out trying to process and freaked out mm-hmm. and like sad and scared and confused and uh, in a brief moment of like empathy and compassion on Raffaele's part he saw that I was in distress and gave me a kiss to comfort me and that like three second moment of my life Mm. became an object of repeated and and systematic vilification to portray me as someone who was so callous that I was making out outside of a crime scene. And it's like I was not making out, nor was I was I, like not concerned. In fact, Raffaele kissed me because I was distressed. Right. <laughs> and right. He, he was trying to comfort me. And how that was twisted is emblematic of how all of the evidence in this case right. was twisted or made up or screwed up or invented out of whole cloth because the detectives and the prosecutor decided on a theory of the case before they had any evidence. And then they pursued a case to prove their hunch and instead of pursuing a case based on the evidence. Right. I mean, I, ro- I want to get really into the tabloids and everything and how everything was twisted, like from a cartwheel you were doing that was really a yoga pose to every single thing was so twisted. But before we get into like the interrogation and the period after the murder, so much of the narrative was that you were quirky or Hmm. not neurotypical or something in some capacity. Because someone will say, oh, like, I'm quirky, too, or I'm this and I'm that. And your husband said something that was so profound. He was like, how much of he I'm butchering this quote, but he said how much of your perception was altered by the media. So, like, do you feel that you are are quirky? Like, what do you feel about that presumption? So a lot of people reached out to me even while I was in prison to say things like, oh, you know, you're histrionic or maybe you're on the spectrum or whatever it may be. And and it's quirky has almost become like a bad word in our household just because right. it's like over. It seems to me like in the, quirky has been used in my case the way a short skirt has been used in yes. rape victims cases. Yes. The point being that. The 
reasoning, the blame mm. for me becoming a victim of misjustice is put onto me by people suggesting that because I acted in a, quote, quirky way, that justified there being a, this suspicion put on me. And my husband's counterpoint to this and, and my counterpoint to this, but especially my husband, because he just finds it so he gets way more upset than I do about how people victim blame me in this regard is, first of all, there was a selection bias as soon as I was accused or as soon as I was suspected in the eyes of the prosecutors. They were looking for evidence of guilt and they were not looking for evidence of innocence. And they were interpreting all of my behavior based on a presumption of guilt, not on a presumption of innocence. And so they were interpreting my behavior based upon that lens. But furthermore, in the story, as the story after I was arrested and people started return, like trying to justify retroactively their decision to suspect me, they would say, oh, well, she was acting strangely. Here she was kissing her boyfriend and here she was doing cartwheels and not talking about all the times that I was quiet or I was sad or I cried. They always tried to like there was a selection bias for pointing out behaviors, either real or imagined, that would that would justify their suspicion of me right. or that would sell the story, honestly. Right. And so like when we're talking about media. <laughs> right. This is not necessarily upheld all the time. But does Italy have some sort of innocent until proven guilty standpoint or practice in place? Well, <laughs> technically it does, right. but also technically it does here in the United States, too. Exactly. And wrongful convictions happen. Like, as much as we want to uphold the principles mm -hmm. of of reasonable doubt and innocent until proven guilty, there is a weight attached. There is like there is a burden that gets put on the person who is accused of a crime to prove their innocence so that people do not feel like there is that feeling that people have that like I need to know that she's innocent to know that she's not guilty. Yes. As much as we want to uphold those principles, I think it is human nature even yeah. to not live up to that in our own minds and to not be that generous towards people, especially when they have no reason to care about them. Like the vast majority of people who have ever heard of this case had never met me before, nor will they ever meet me. And so they don't have to worry about the consequences of judging me. There are no consequences for them. The only consequences I got put in prison and they don't care about me anyway. So right. What makes a better story? You know, yeah. it's, and that's all it comes down to. So why didn't you go home right after the murder? Because the police told me not to. Really? Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Like my my mom was freaking out, of course. Yeah. And she was like, you need to come home now, especially my aunt in Germany. Mm -hmm. I have an aunt who lives in Germany who um, I actually saw recently. Um, and she like to this day is like kicking herself mm -hmm. that she didn't just go down to Perugia to get me. Mm -hmm. The reason she didn't was because she had given birth to her child two weeks before. <sighs> And so that's the only reason why she didn't come down there uh, to, like, bring me home to her house until right. this whole thing was resolved. Because as far as my family knew, there was a killer on the loose who might kill me. Right. And so they wanted me as far away from that space as possible. 
But the police were telling me that I was an important witness and I was crucial to finding the killer. And so I was not to leave Perugia. So not telling you that you are a suspect, but saying that you are, okay. Yeah, never, I was never told that I was a suspect um, prior to being arrested. And indeed, it was days after I was arrested that I first learned that I was actually a suspect. Wow. So your parents must have been losing their minds wanting you to get home. Yes. And in fact, my mom, the day I was arrested, um, I'm convinced the reason I was arrested that night in the middle of the night, that particular night, Mm -hmm. was because the cops had wiretapped my phones. They They were listening to my conversations with my family members, and they knew that the very next day, the very next morning, in fact, my mom would arrive in Italy. My mom had bought a plane ticket, was coming to Italy to support me, mm-hmm. and they knew that that was the last moment that they would have access to me at my most vulnerable. And without your mom. Without my mom. Mm-hmm. And so here I was being interrogated throughout the night into the morning, and my phone, which they had taken from me, was ringing and sitting there and on the table in front of me, and it was my mom who was oh. calling because she had landed in Rome. And I and I said, please, can I answer the phone? It's my mom. And they said, no, you are absolutely not allowed to answer your phone. And I told them, my mom is going to think I, I got murdered. Right. Like, I need to answer the phone. And they were like, nope, you cannot. Wow. And, yeah, so. Wow, what your mom must have been feeling, which you can only understand now as a mom. But so what people, I think, don't understand is – being interrogated and what that consists of. And when you are 20 years old in a foreign country and being interrogated for, what was it, five days total? Yeah, so yeah, so I was being questioned by the police for five days straight, 53 hours total over those five days. So they would allow me to go to Raffaele's to sleep, okay. but I would be in the police office for hours oh, and hours and hours. Right. Um, answering their questions over and over again, looking at pictures from Halloween um, that were posted on, like, social media or that people had, you know, Meredith's friends had given the police to that they had taken that night while they were out, you know, partying, um, trying to, like, identify who might be a sketchy individual who might have done this. And so tons and tons of just, like, asking me to rack my brain. Has anyone ever showed even the slightest interest in Meredith and was a creepy person? And do yeah. you, what kind of phone numbers do you have? And who who are all the people that you know? And so like just this constant, like giving them information and the same information over and over again, explaining, well, this is what I did last night. This is what I, the, the last time I saw Meredith, she was dressed in these clothes and that kind of thing over and over and over again. Until that final interrogation when I was called in, actually, Raffaele was called in, and it was like 10 o'clock at night that we got the phone call from the cops to come in, which was Oh, my odd. God. Yeah. And so, but he went in, and because I didn't want to be home alone, mm-hmm. like Meredith, when mm-hmm. she was murdered, right. I went to the police station with him, and I was in the waiting room waiting for him, doing my homework. Um, and actually, like, talking to Philomena on the phone, they brought me in. They, like, they found me there. I was stretching, doing homework, whatever. Right. And they invited me to come in. Well, they told me to come into their office to answer questions if I was going to be at the police office anyway. Okay. And it was there over the course of that night mm-hmm. that they told me that everything that I had told them 
in the, in all of those days leading up to that moment was a lie. Oh. They told me that I was lying or that I didn't remember correctly what the truth was. Oh, my and God. So you start to feel insane. Yes. So, like, I'm in a room full of adults who are people I'm supposed to trust, who are there to solve this murder. Who don't speak the same language as you. Who don't speak the same language as me, who are all telling me that I was at home that night and that I witnessed who had murdered Meredith and that it was so traumatizing that I did not remember it. So you were being gaslit. I was being gaslit mm-hmm. and I was being told I was being fed a story that would explain how I had no idea who killed Meredith but could still be the key witness and they told me, "Well, who did you meet that night? Who did you meet that night? Give us your phone." And lo and behold, they once they took my phone, they saw that I had exchanged a text message with Patrick Lumumba, my boss at the local store or at the local bar, and it they misinterpreted a what I had written to him, I had said in Italian uh, or in my broken Italian, like mm-hmm. he had told me I didn't have to come come into work that night. Mm-hmm. So I said, OK, have a good night. I'll see you later. Mm-hmm. And they interpreted that to mean instead of just a vague see you later, like I'm going to see you later tonight. And so they said, you met with Patrick Lumumba and you witnessed Meredith's murder. Did Patrick Lumumba kill Meredith? Did he rape <sighs> Meredith? Did he do this? Did you hear her scream? And and whenever I told them no, they said you're lying or mm-hmm. you can't remember. Mm-hmm. And so over the course of hours and hours and hours of being told this, slapped even for like saying that it wasn't true. Oh my they, God. They were saying like, you gotta remember, you gotta yeah. remember. And like, finally I said, okay, fine. I, I remember that maybe Patrick did it. <sighs> I don't know. I'm confused. And they wrote that up and I signed it. And Mm. that was, then I was. But that happens (laughs) all the time. That happens all the time. And, and And by the way, when there isn't a language barrier, but when there is and you're so young and you just want to get out of that room, you want to see your mom, like. Mm -hmm. That's and you and you genuinely feel crazy. Like, why right. would these people be treating me this way? Right. If if like they're like the only explanation that I could think of, like I couldn't. It was so beyond me to think that the police could be lying to me or that that I could be wrongly accused of something. That like I I internalized their alternative, which was that I was a traumatized person who had witnessed something right. horrible. Right. And of course, like hours later, I recant and I tell them no i can't like this isn't true it's not real i can't testify to this they didn't care they already had the narrative that they needed to arrest somebody and so they arrested patrick they put handcuffs on me and Raffaele, telling me however that i was not under arrest but what? that i was going to a holding place for my own protection oh and that my the God. handcuffs were a formality wow yeah so, so you were duped right until the last second basically oh yeah Oh, yeah. Wow. 100 percent lied to, gaslit, coerced, denied my rights to an attorney, my right to communicate with my mom. And indeed, like ultimately what happened was my interrogation was deemed illegal and was not allowed to be submitted as evidence of um, my involvement in Meredith's murder. However, like by this quirk of the Italian justice system, I was tried both criminally and civilly at the same time in the same courtroom. 
And so with the same jury. Mm. And so the judge basically said, well, you can use Amanda's interrogation only in the civil case. Patrick Lumumba sued me for defamation. Right. And they and the judge explained to the jury, but you can't use that piece of evidence to, as a reason to find her guilty of murder. But they're but still hearing course, it. They're still hearing yes. it. And of course, they're still influenced by it. Of course. So you were in jail before. Like, when did you get moved to prison? Like, how long did the trial last? Oh, um, so I was in prison as of like the— That day. That day. I was arrested okay. and I spent that—you know, I was in prison for that time. I was in prison for two years leading up to the conviction mm. and then another two years until I was acquitted the first time and I was released from prison. Right. Okay. So you were in there for a total of four years. Was that when you went back home and then were reconvicted? When was that? So, yes. So the Italian justice system works in a slightly different way. So I was imprisoned in 2007. I was initially convicted in 2009. Okay. I was acquitted in 2011 and released from prison, sent back home. Wow. Okay. And then a few years later, I was reconvicted. So basically the, in the Italian justice system, even an acquittal is not definitive until the Italian Supreme Court gives its stamp of approval. Right. And the Italian Supreme Court overturned my acquittal and sent my case back for retrial. Okay. And when I was retried, they found me guilty again. And then I so and then it went back to the Supreme Court yeah. for, you know, a rubber stamp of approval. But of course, the Supreme Court overturned my my second conviction and right. then definitively acquitted me. OK. And so this entire like legal drama took place over the course of eight years. And four of those years, I was in prison. So when you were released and then sent back in, was that the most traumatic thing in the world? You thought you were free? You thought it was over? And then it, what did that feel like? Uh, yeah. Um, so, of course, I was back in the United States. So it's not like I was immediately put back into prison or, or arrested or anything. But, like, what it meant was that even as a a, quote, free person, I was still being hunted down. And I lived in this limbo, this legal limbo where I was trying to live my life and be a person, yeah. but also I like I was going to school and doing all of that, but I'm still on trial for murder and I've been reconvicted. So technically, legally, I'm a murderer and I'm trying to go to school and I'm trying to like have a boyfriend and I'm trying to like, oh you know, and so yeah. I'm trying to live my normal life as best I can. But right. I'm also very much isolated. I'm very much in hiding. I'm very much like under the spotlight constantly. And I it was not a good time. Like it's it was not a normal way to be. Um, and I was deeply, deeply traumatized by that experience. Um, I could not live. I could not live. Like I was I was meeting with lawyers and discussing how I would have to eventually maybe turn myself into the local authorities in the hopes that I would serve my sentence here in the United States as opposed to Italy. Like these were the kinds of conversations that I was having and the kinds of thoughts I was experiencing as a, you know, 25, 26, 27 year old. Wow. You don't think it's crazy to when you place the age on it, because that's something that normally people don't ever experience. And you're experiencing it so intensely in such a already 
dicey time in your life, you know, like when you're 20s, like to have this to deal with must have just been impossible. I'm so curious, and I think so many other people are curious, what is Italian jail like for a young American 20-something-year-old? So in some ways, it's better than here in the United States. I did not have to wear a prison uniform, okay. and I was not given a prison number. Oh, interesting. So I, re- I retained my name. I was still referred to by name, mm-hmm. and I was allowed to wear my own clothing as long as it was you know, within the sort of limitations of the prison environment. So you brought like a suitcase. Well, I didn't have a suitcase. Um, I okay. was like, where would you get the clothes? Um, my parents would bring them in. Oh, okay. Yes, yes, yes. So okay. by visitation, or like there were some nuns there who um, like gathered clothes, um, like donations and things mm-hmm. like that. And mm-hmm. it was mostly just like sweatpants and things. And honestly, it's not like you're high fashion in prison. Like I spent the four years in sweatpants, but it, that's fine. Yes, <laughs> it's better than a prison jumpsuit, yes. and it's better Agreed. than being in a number. Um, I but at the same time, like I'm we're living in a it's living in a world of people who are well, first of all, where there's insane limitations, where you do not have um, autonomy in in your own life. You 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 barely have any agency. Um, You're severely limited in what you can do, when you can do it, um, what what things you can own um, and. So, you know, like I was limited to 10 photographs of my family at a time. And so I I had to very, very carefully curate these 10 photographs. And I was allowed only certain amounts, like pairs of underwear. And I was washing my, doing my laundry in the sink. And like, so lots and lots of um, reduced opportunities and, um, and also just like, social isolation you're 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 trapped in a scenario where um i was surrounded by a lot of people who above all else had been victims of crime before they ever had committed crimes themselves and so we're talking about people who are really really suffering broken um people who are suffering from addiction problems, neglect problems, abuse problems, impulse control problems, people who are not in a good place in their life. And I was one of the, in fact, I was the only person there who still had all of her original teeth. I was um, the only person there who was college educated um, I was the I was the outsider in a lot of ways. I was the famous one. Everyone knew about my case and was talking about it. Um, I was the American girl. They called me um, they called me America a lot of the time, like the other mm-hmm. inmates. So being the odd duck out mm-hmm. definitely felt like I had a target on my back yeah. a lot of the time. And I tried to be invisible a lot of the time. I tried to mind my own business. I tried to just spend my time reading and writing and not getting involved in, you know, prison gossip or anything like that. Yeah. But at the same time, like at a certain point, especially after my conviction, I realized that I was a part of this community. I yeah. wasn't just sort of a, a visitor. I was You're this like, was, this could be the rest of my life. This could be the rest of my life. I need to figure out what my role in this community is. And so I established a routine where all those women that didn't know how to read and write, mm. well, I would do their reading and writing for them. Mm. And I got, I would have an exercise routine that I would do every day. And I, I, 
um, had a one 10-minute phone call with my family a week, and mm-hmm. I always looked forward to it. And I had six hours of visitation a month, and so I saw my family for six hours a month. And I made the most of it. And So you kept those as, like, benchmarks to keep your sanity, kind of. Yeah. And it, it was a struggle every day because every day felt like it was – it had the potential of being stolen from me, right? right? Like. It, it started out as stolen from me. And so I, I, it felt like every day was me sort of taking back my life from being stolen. And it was on me to make my life worth living that day. And a lot so, of pressure. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it was also from a place of stubbornness. Like, yeah. I don't deserve to be here. So I don't deserve to have this day stolen from me. So I'm going to do what I can to feel like I've taken ownership of this day and I've done something worthwhile with with the limit within the limitations that I have. And so that's what I did. It was tough, though. Wow. Did you ever succumb to were you like, maybe I did do it? Like, did you question your sanity a ton? The only time I ever questioned my sanity was when I was under interrogation. Um, The rest of the time, the sort of surreal experience was, like, I spent a long time waiting for everyone to figure it out. Mm -hmm. Like, being convinced that it was all just a big misunderstanding and that these people whose jobs are to discover the truth and to do justice were going to do that. Having continued faith, even as I was sitting in prison, that that was— something that I could look forward to. And then when I was wrongly convicted, I no longer had even that to fall mm-hmm. back on. Um, mm-hmm. And I had to instead realize that the world is way more unfair than I thought it was and that there must be like everything that I thought was what my life was going to be, like family, career, all of that. I had to re I had to reestablish my relationship with my own life in light of the circumstances and try to imagine a life worth living in that scenario. Right. Were you in solitary confinement? I was never in strict solitary confinement. I was in um, for eight months, though. The first eight months, I was se- I was separated from okay. everyone else, so I was not allowed to socialize with anyone else, mm-hmm. um, and I was not allowed to take part in activities. But like, I was not like Raffaele in in solitary confinement. Okay. And what were the coping mechanisms that you used other than like looking forward to your family phone calls? What were those silent moments alone like? How did you? Honestly, I spent a lot of time just singing to myself. Mm. In fact, like especially in those early days because I love to sing and I was playing guitar at the time. And so in like I countless, countless times, like even like times where the guards would come and tell me to shut up. Um I would just sing yeah. to myself, um, yeah. and it was comforting. Um, like it was, it's it was almost like compulsive. Yeah, where I just like I needed something to sound sweet and nice around me, and in this like totally devastating environment, and I just needed some sort of. It was almost like a mantra at that point where I was like trying to give myself some kind of positive messaging right. and like and sort of exist in a sort of meditative um, mantra space. And I just sang to myself, especially like let it be over and over wow. and over again. 
Wow. Did your mom sing to you growing up? My mom um, would always have, like, the Disney CDs in the car so that we would all sing out loud together. And I love to sing. Like, I was in choir in school, and I played guitar, and um, I, to this day, really love to sing. It's a a deeply comforting experience for me. And so it was very much a source of comfort. Mm -hmm. And to the point that, like, even um, I remember there was, like, we're coming up on Christmas here. and. While I was still in isolation that first Christmas, I was, of course, like singing alone in my cell and across uh, the hallway. I, I'd come to be sort of known like people could hear me singing okay. all the time. And at a certain point, like, the you know, it's Christmas and other people came to their like to the sort of door of their cells and started like giving me song requests. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so and of course like it's Christmas, the guards are like, "Ah, eh, it's yeah, fine." Right. Like technically they're not supposed to be talking to me, but like the guards are like, "Ah, eh, it's Christmas." So they let the the other inmates sort of launch song requests at me wow. and so I would just sing. <laughs> That's really funny. Did that become like I mean it's funny and, you know, in a very particular way. Like did you continue that tradition yeah yeah no absolutely um and it's funny even when um so at a certain point um along my journey one other american person was imprisoned and she was much older than me in her 50s but like we became friends and would walk around the yard together and every day before we like as we were walking around the yard when we first talked to each other she really wanted to sing our national anthem together (laughs) As a kind of like fuck you to yes. Italy, yes. <laughs> so we would like sing the national anthem as we That's were like amazing. walking around the yard. That's amazing. <laughs> that is. Re- do you do you keep in touch with her at all? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You do. Wow. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about when you found out you were free, and then I know that you said that when you were free and when you came home and everything, there you know everyone was really welcoming, and I listened to some of your first day home episode of your podcast. And everyone had signs like, welcome home, Amanda, right? And mm-hmm. But I have to imagine that you were entering some sort of new prison in, in a sense of your name wasn't the same. It didn't mean the same as it did before. What was yeah. that like, those first couple months back? Well, those first couple months back were frantic mm-hmm. because the paparazzi were staked up outside of my parents' home and I couldn't leave their house without being followed by by media. And so for months, it was like car chases and not being able to leave my house and and feeling trapped and not knowing where to go and like and trying to go to the grocery store, or trying to go on a walk with my mom with like to walk her, her dogs with them and like people taking pictures of me in the woods, like crazy stuff. Um, and there was it seemed like there was no way to get away from it. It was and and over the course of the years, whenever there was some sort of new news in the case, like the paparazzi would once again show up and and invade my privacy. Um, and that was challenging because I thought that I was coming home to the world and the life that I that had been on pause, basically, while I was being tried. And I realized slowly that that life and that world no longer existed. And I had to adapt to a vastly a world that treated me in a vastly different way. Um, and try to understand, once again, like adapt to, well, how do I make the best 
how do I do the best thing I possibly can in these bad circumstances, given these circumstances? And that's an ongoing thing to this day where I continually ask myself, am I doing the best I can given these circumstances? And also, are these circumstances going to change? Because as much as I try to sort of have agency over my own life and agency over my own identity, I'm still grappling with that same issue of like there's a doppelganger idea version of me that exists in the world that I'm constantly in conversation with. And that has that that puts limitations on the kinds of things that I'm I'm mm. able to do. Like why? In the meantime, well, like am I am I going to be able to publish a children's book right. if people are like, "Oh, I don't want my children to be reading a children's book by a murderer." Like, no, you know, totally. Like, and and of course, like let's think about all the years that I lost in prison and how I was unable to get the job and mm-hmm. and work experience that people have and oh, I, it it definitely impacts my career choices mm-hmm. if I have to worry about paparazzi showing up outside of my workplace, if it's a known place where I'm visible and and people can see me. Totally. And that there's a whole ton of baggage that comes with being me. And so the world that I've tried to build for myself where I'm a podcaster and I work from home and I work in the company of my husband, like I've had to sort of invent a world where I can Mm -hmm. do the best I possibly can. And, you know, through my podcast Labyrinths, talk about talk with other people about this very exact same experience of feeling like they don't have control over their own lives. And how do you how do you re- sort of regain a sense of yourself through that process? And it's a almost a sort of both professional and therapy mm-hmm. kind of work where I'm still processing my own experience as I'm processing others' experiences. But that's why you've chosen such a beautiful line of work for yourself because it, it, you're right. You can modify it like to not be triggering in the way that like it is just you and your husband and it is a way for you to get your story out and listen to other people and connect with other people to know you're not alone and maybe maybe you are really alone in this particular very specific instance but that the feelings can be universal yes exactly have you talked to monica Lewinsky ever oh yeah absolutely yeah no monica has been very kind to me in the sense that of course, she's being a highly vilified right. internationally for decades woman, um, vilified particularly through her sexuality when she was a very young person mm-hmm. um, and people ignoring, like defining the problem of that scandal um, as her, sort of blaming her as right. opposed to the other people involved in this situation um, who had more agency and more responsibility yes. than her. Like that, those are all aspects of her experience that speak to my experience as well. And in the past, and even very recently, um, Monica has given me really, really great advice um, and just like sort of expressed care and and thoughtfulness um, towards me, which I really greatly appreciate and was wonderful when I first met her. I first met her in... 2017. And she was giving a talk in Seattle and I became aware of that. And someone put me in contact and I went and met her in her hotel room and she mm. made me a cup of tea and, and gave me, you know, some advice about public speaking and, and just general self-care. Um, she's really, really, um, because like 
She's a bully, anti-bully advocate. Like she's very, very keen on self-love and self-care in the face of you know, public shaming, right? Um, which is really great. And she's probably one of the very few people who can understand, like, walking into a room and feeling like everyone already has an opinion or an assumption about you that it's not true. Yep. So I think, you know, we'll round out the rest of this interview, but something I really want to touch on in relation to Monica Lewinsky in your case was so sexualized. It was so... When it really, I mean, I guess there was, of course, there was a rape involved, so I guess there was sex involved, but it really became Foxy Noxy, which is just like the worst fact that like your name happened to rhyme with Foxy in some capacity. But when you were going through that, like little things came out, like everything from like how many sexual partners you've had in your life and just all these things were out there for the world to see. How does a 20-year-old, and then now who you are today, how do you reclaim your sexuality? Mm, that's a really good question um, because you're right. Like the way that female sexuality was vilified in this case is astonishing. And also like the thing that really bugs me out about it, um, particularly when I think about all of these different like TV shows and movies that get made that are inspired by this case, like this idea of female on female sexual violence. Like that's ultimately what it comes down to, this idea of female on female sexual violence, which almost never happens, (laughs) um, is a misogynist fantasy. Um, Like, first of all, it pitched Meredith as like a not like an asexual human right. being. And right. that's why she was the like sort of perfect victim is she was a serious girl who wasn't just having casual affairs like Amanda was. She's Amanda is this over sexualized, impulsive, uninhibited woman. And right. therefore, of course, Meredith resented her because she's a serious girl who's not doing that kind of thing. And it's like, well, Meredith can be a perfect victim of sexual assault and still be someone who's having a good time and like hanging out with people and and having, you know, flings like that's like you don't have to portray her as somebody who didn't have casual sex in order for her to be a legitimate victim of sexual violence. Right. Nor do you have to look at me and say, oh, she's capable of murder because she is a sexual young woman like that. Just sexual meaning like seven partners, which is seven so partners normal, in my whole life, which is wait. Like, <laughs> I know. But like the way that it was portrayed was, you know, I'm just like overly sexual and therefore capable of murder. Meanwhile, meanwhile, we're ignoring a very, very real reality about sexual violence, which is that it is perpetrated by men and it was perpetrated by a man Meredith was the victim of a man who raped and murdered her. This is and that was completely overlooked. Just people just ignoring the crap out of the person who actually sexually assaulted and murdered her because the idea of a young woman who is capable of that kind of sexual violence was more interesting and more novel than yet another story of a young man who sexually assaults and murders a young woman, which is boring and doesn't sell papers. Okay, we got to take a quick break and we'll be right back. So how did you reclaim your sexuality from that? So like, how did it impact you? Like, did it make Mm -hmm. you just never want to touch a man again? Because whatever, (laughs) like, how did you reclaim your sexuality? That's a good question, because I definitely, for years after coming home, did not put myself out there, did not meet new people, 
the first two people I dated after coming home and while I was still on trial and everything were people that I had known for years, mm-hmm. um, people who had been friends for a long time. And the first person who I became intimate with and like, you know, partnered up with yeah. after everything was my husband. Right. Um, wow. And he was a special person because he went out of his way. So first of all, I met my husband, Christopher, very, very shortly after I was fully exonerated by the Italian Supreme Court. Okay. So it was like a month before. Mm-hmm. And that then I met him. And when we first met, we were both dating different people. And so I was not actually we weren't like romantically interested in each other. We just had like this nice sort of friendship yeah. moment where we're like, oh, we're both interested in poetry and blah, 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 and like in Star Trek. So maybe we should be friends. And I thought, wow, how nice I can m- make friends with new people like a normal person maybe mm. now. And so he became one of my first friends that I like actually like a new person in my life post everything. Right. And that was not something that, to this day that's not something that happens a lot for right. me. And, you know, nine months or so later, our life circumstances had changed and we started dating. Um, but he was like a, an especially um, great person for me to meet because he's not the kind of guy who Googles the girls mm. he dates. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, right. he, he knew that like I was known and that and there was this true crime sort of scandal around me. He knew that he didn't right. live under a rock. But like he had encountered me like a normal person does yeah. in, in a very different context. And he decided from the get go that he was not going to Google me mm-hmm. as he was getting to know me. And of course, like, you know, his friend, like various people that he met when they learned that he was friends with me, they would say, oh, well, do you think she did it or didn't she do it? And of course, that's the lens that everyone wants to look at it. And he's like, you know what? I'm interested in her as a person Mm. and I'm just going to hang out with her as a person and not bug her about this horrible case that she had to go through. Right. And then only like months and months after we were uh, started dating, did he read my book and start to educate himself about the case? Because, of course, as my by then partner, people were starting to make assumptions about the kind of person he was being so close to me. Um, But he was someone who from the get go viewed me through a humanistic lens instead of through the lens of the case. And that helped you reclaim like your sexuality that's so that's really beautiful that he's so special to have done that where does the trauma live in your body and what are the triggers that still get to you today Hmm. um so where they live in my body right like i'll show you um right here yes um, like uh so chest like feeling of uh, not being able to breathe Mm -hmm. is a big thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I also get um, pressure in my temples Mm. um, when I feel like what I sort of get that um, I still get this almost like I'm in a tunnel, like the world is sort of like it gets dark around the edges and my world becomes smaller and I start to feel suffocated and claustrophobic Mm -hmm. in my own life. That's where that lives for me physically. And the triggers for these kinds of things are, um, I mean, the biggest one for me is I I really don't um, like to be accused of something that I didn't do mm-hmm. or to be gaslit. Mm-hmm. And w- when I feel like someone it has is not being honest with me, 
Like, which, of course, we all occasionally right. are not totally honest with each other about our motivations or our intentions or, you know, whatever it may be. It still it hurts me in a deep way. Like, I I, I really struggle with it. Rightfully so. Um, like, even just for something as little as, like, you know, I, I text someone like, oh, I'm busy or something. And then they'll say, oh, you know, you're you don't care about me because you didn't want to talk to me or right. whatever. And it's like, no, I didn't say that. I just said I'm I'm really busy right now. I'm in the middle of work. And so, like, just the idea that someone would accuse me of not caring about them because I didn't, you know, I said I'm busy like that. That hits me in a in a bad way. Totally. Where I'm like, no, no. You like that's not true. It's not true. And like, right. And, it could be anything like who ate the last cookie and I couldn't see who how that would be cookie? triggering. Yes, it's it's stuff like that that I'm still struggling to wrap my mind around. Yeah. Um or try, like I don't want to be the kind of person who is easily triggered and therefore like gets, you know, un unstabilized easily. Um and that's one thing where I just like I can't stop thinking about it. When mm-hmm. I feel like someone is not being honest with me, like I I'm, I'm the most forgiving and accepting person as long as you're honest with me. But if I feel like you're telling me something and I know that it's not true, mm-hmm. I just can't like I just can't let it go. Right. I can't let it go. I, I just like it goes it's I, understandable. My thoughts, yeah. It's totally understandable. Have you been back to Italy since? Like, I think it's so amazing that you even want to have your do- give your daughter an experience abroad. Like, is it triggering for you to go back to Italy? Yeah, of course it is. Yeah. But I've been. Um, and I, I do believe in, like, confronting trauma yeah. and in resolving conflict. These are both really important principles for me. And I try to live up to those. So when I was given the opportunity to speak at an Italian um, innocence project, like their first ever sort of public event in 2019, I was asked to give their keynote address about trial by media. Oh, wow. And so in a very short amount of time, like I was given, you know, two months head time, like knowledge that this is going to happen. I accepted and I was like, oh, my God, I have two months to emotionally and and in intellectually get ready for a very very traumatic wow. thing for me. Yes. And it was it was very it was a sh- tremendous challenge. Mm-hmm. I was really scared. There was so many logistics that had to be thought of because I was afraid I would get arrested or I was afraid that I would get shanked like I didn't know what was going to happen right. to me. Right. But I gave a talk in Italy and to my great great surprise I was well received. And at the end of it, it was a very fulfilling experience, um, despite the fact that I had a number of panic attacks oh. because the paparazzi were ruthless. Right. But yes, I went back to Italy. You did it. and And yeah, because I, I do believe in not running away from your fears. Yeah. Yeah. What an incredible example to set for your daughter. She's, oh, she's thank very you. lucky in that way. <laughs> she's really Thanks. lucky. Have you watched the Netflix documentary? Mm hmm. And anything that they got just painstakingly wrong that you're just like? Mm, No, I I think the filmmakers did a really, really um, good job um, within the limited scope of what they were able to do. Like, of course, there were like a million other things that could have been talked about. Like, you know, all of the the 
crazy evidence that was brought to court that was ultimately refuted, like, you know, the homeless guy who showed up and said he saw me the night of the murder, but it turns out it was actually Halloween. Like, all (sighs) this sort of, like, blah, blah, blah that made the case go on and on and on and that people speculate about when they really want to, like, get into the fine, gritty details of everything. Like, they, they ultimately did a good job, which was focusing on the the evidence that the entire case hinged upon, not just like the sort of speculative, you know, right. inconsequential. Blah, blah, blah. Yes. Um, but there was a lot of that going on because the police were sort of constantly, desperately trying to find definitive proof of my guilt and were just coming out of nowhere with like crazy ideas that ultimately fell through. The other thing that they were interested in but didn't ultimately get to portray in that documentary because, again, limited space, limited time, limited scope, was Minini's history, my prosecutor's history Mm. of abuse of office and how my prosecutor was actually on trial for abuse of office while he was prosecuting me. Wow. Oh, I didn't even know that. Mm-hmm. And then, yep. like, to watch back, like, I was watching and I was seeing, like, how the evidence was being handled. And it's, like, it's like a free-for-all in that house. Like, it's, like, no one's wearing booties or no one's wearing gloves, really. It's, like, just passing around evidence, like, even kicking the door down. Like, it's just the whole case is just so wild. So I feel like in a movie, the fact they, that they even got that much right is good because there's probably so much to cover. Oh, yeah. And and I, I say, I think they did the thing that they did the best was everyone that they interviewed, including the reporter who represented like the tabloid media, every single one of one of the people that were given those like key interviews were allowed to see the film before it was released. And every single person approved of the way that they wow. were portrayed. That's hard to do. Which is, which is hard to do, but it goes to show that, like, the filmmakers understood – they did a really good listening and they really understood the perspective of these individuals. And you cannot agree with their perspectives. Like, the tabloid journalist talking about how it was the best, you know, case of his career because he could just endlessly recycle scandalous stories and headlines and he was on the front page and la, 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 la. Like, you can – disagree with him and at the same time like see that he exists in an ecosystem that allows for that kind of um, behavior to exist like he's he's not just an uh, individually bad reporter like he's a reporter who works in a bad system right right i have one last question for you how does someone like you, like with this Rudy Gaudet shit happening, and how do you approach social media? Like, it, I, it didn't mm. exist necessarily when you were going – or it did. It was just the beginning, right, when you were going through all of this. But you didn't have a phone. Like, I can only imagine the tabloid scrutiny you got already. That would have just been exacerbated by social media. Do you touch mm. social media now? So I do have social media and I'm very mindful of how I use it. To be frank, I mostly use it to promote my work. Yeah. So, you know, you'll often if you go onto my Instagram feed or my Twitter feed, mm-hmm. so at Amanda Knox on Twitter, at Amama Knox on Instagram, okay. you'll find a lot of it is pointing to my podcast labyrinths. Yeah. <laughs> or like I might, you know, promote this interview or something like that. But I also put up pictures of my cats and my husband. I do not, however, um, and I have chosen very, very specifically to not not put pictures of my daughter mm. on social media because mm-hmm. I, first of all, completely, I have a, a huge sensitivity for how 
Um, and I think understanding for how people's social media like content ultimately doesn't belong to them. That's why it's free is because you are giving your content to these companies that they are then selling to people or that people are freely allowed to use in whatever context they want. So I can't tell you the number of times tabloids have taken an image from my Instagram and published it under an incredibly right. salacious um, headline that totally strips me of context and tries to vilify me. Yes. So that happens all the time. And people don't really understand that that is a possibility because we feel we have this like false sense of ownership over our own social media feeds. And we don't. We do not own those feeds. Wow. So it's like and we know that, but it's such an important reminder, you know. Mm -hmm. And yet it's like such an important part of our social lives now. So if you want to exist on social, like if you want to exist, you kind of have to have a digital entity and those digital entities exist on these platforms. Right. And so weirdly, like you have to be a person in this world today, you have to exist on social media, which means you have to be at the mercy of these institutions that can exploit you. Right. And but at the same time, you know, ultimately social media, just like regular media, is a tool and it is a tool that can be used or misused. And a lot of times like Something that I really appreciate about social media is it puts me in direct contact with people who want to get a hold of me, who um, have, you know, stories of crazy things that have happened to them. And they end up becoming um, people I interview for my podcast, Labyrinths, like, you know, or I just, you know, people reach out hoping to get some advice about their own experience that's has like – you know, they're getting bullied at school or something. Right. How, like, what would what would I tell them? So in that way, social media is great. It can connect you with people, but it also leaves you vulnerable to exploitation. And that's why I am absolutely, absolutely not putting any photos of my daughter ever on social media. No, I think that's a great decision. <laughs> but because <laughs> you, you just know what they can do with it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and it's and it you've been so insanely wronged by the media and by tabloids that it makes sense that you would feel that way. Yeah. Until there are better rules that protect individuals. Seriously. Oh, well, thank you so, so much for doing this with me. I learned so much. Thank you for this therapy session. Oh, my God. No, I like learned so much from you. You You're such an incredible, incredible person. I know how icky it is to like relive all of this and just have to do it over and over again. So from the bottom of my heart, I'm so grateful. Thank you, thank you, oh. thank you. You were so wonderful, and I loved getting to meet you. Yeah, thank you so much. I really like talking to you. Since spending most of her 20s in prison and having her name dragged through the mud by the media, Amanda has since rebuilt her life from the ground up. Since then, Amanda has hosted The Scarlet Letter Reports, a Vice Facebook series about the public vilification of women, and The Truth About True Crime, a podcast and Facebook watch series for Sundance AMC. She is also a featured contributor to CrimeStory.com, where she has written extensively about criminal justice reform. She currently produces and hosts the podcast Labyrinths with her husband, Christopher Robinson. I was so grateful that Amanda spent this time with me and shared her story again because lord knows poor thing is probably so tired of talking about it but what i really learned from this episode along with the fact that she is so strong and brave and 
that we can get through so much as humans and we're resilient and it's amazing and I just I'm in awe of her really but what I really am taking away from this interview is how universal these feelings are I mean obviously none of us can really relate to Amanda's story exactly or maybe even anywhere near but I really believe that pain is subjective and I really love that Amanda articulated the emotions, the way that she feels her trauma, the lasting impact that all of this had on her, the way that she expresses those emotions, her triggers. I feel like those feelings are so universal and I think that we can all see ourselves in at least one part of Amanda's story. So thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And let's continue the conversation. I'm always on Instagram, Lord help me, at Jade Iovine. And you can find me there so we can talk about it. I'm dying to hear what you think. And as always, please rate, review, and follow the podcast page. Leave a review telling me what you think about this episode or other episodes that you've heard. It's really how we grow, and I would be forever grateful. Happy New Year again. I'm so glad to be back, and I'll see you guys next week. Bye.